1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and National Security. I'm Shannon Nash, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Mark Sageman about his new book, Misunderstanding Terrorism. And the book discusses how our understanding of terrorism has very important implications for the development of policies to deal with it. Mark Sageman, welcome to the show. Uh,
0: thank you for having me. It's an honor.
1: Excellent. Mark, I was wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Well, uh I'm probably the old generation. (laughs) I'm basically in my uh, early 60s. And uh, I've been looking at political violence since um, I was a teenager. Basically, I'm a child of Holocaust survivors. And... uh, You know, I always wanted to understand what really happened during World War II, uh, this type of uh, ugly political violence. Uh, I wrote my dissertation as an undergraduate on uh, trying to understand concentration camps, uh, how people uh, were able to survive them and uh then uh through my life uh i was involved in uh various uh aspects of political violence uh, uh i was uh uh working for the u s government uh when uh uh the when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in 1979, which kind of caused uh, a strong resistance by the locals. And what caught my interest is uh, reading that uh, the Soviet Union, uh, within two years of invading Afghanistan, had killed about 10 to 15 percent of the population. I thought this was a genocide. And uh, I was uh, a bit shocked by... uh, the possibility of a genocide after all the treaties and everybody saying, no, this is not possible anymore. And so uh, I got involved in uh, uh, helping the resistance against the Soviets. And uh, then when I went back to civilian life, uh, I looked at uh, ethno political conflicts until about 9 uh, 11. Uh, and then I kind of. Uh, Looked at my background and so uh, read what people were saying about uh, Al Qaeda, and I said, you know, that, that that's that's not my experience working <laughs> with uh, Muslim fundamentalists to try to uh, basically defend their own country from foreign invaders, and uh, then I basically try to see what what do we know about uh, those people who did 9-11. And so from then on, looking at them empirically, trying to use uh, epidemiological tools to really understand uh, uh, the motivation and the background of uh, those people. Uh, I spent, I guess, the last 15 years uh, <laughs> studying them. And what I found is that There seems to be some kind of framing of terrorism in the press, politicians, the way people think about it, which is not really what the terrorists, and I've interviewed about 30 of them in various countries, uh... That's not their understanding of what they're doing. And I thought that for us to really understand and prevent this type of political violence, we need to, first of all, understand the perpetrators, the terrorists themselves. Mm-hmm. So that's, that was really part of my uh, motivation to write this book, Misunderstanding Terrorism.
1: Excellent. Great. And uh, to kind of jump right into the book itself, to give our listeners a little bit of a background, um, we'll be referring to the term neo-jihadi in the interview. Could you give us a bit of an explanation of why you came to choose that term, perhaps to describe the groups you're talking about?
0: Yes. Uh, basically, over 10 years ago when I wrote uh, my first book, uh, uh, understanding terror networks, uh, I confidently called uh, this whole wave of political violence a uh, uh, global uh, Salafi jihad. And, you know, people read my book and were telling me, you know, it really isn't jihad. Uh, jihad is really rule governed. You can't really uh, kill noncombatants. You can't kill women and children who are not involved. So, you know, what the terrorists did in 9-11 is definitely not jihad. Mm -hmm. And they're right. I mean, if you look at uh, uh, Islamist jurisprudence, that is exactly right. Uh, They're right. So, i 'm looking for another term, and I was asking, and I traveled extensively in the Middle East and uh, talked to people and said, "Well, what would you call it and you know they couldn't they couldn 't think of anything else, and so basically I, but, but the terrorists themselves called themselves Mujahideen. Namely, people who do jihad, so they think of themselves as jihadis mm-hmm. and and so I'm a little bit stuck here uh, If I don't use the word jihad, people would not understand who i'm talking about. I can always you know instead of a shorthand global neo jihadi uh, uh, Refer to the groups themselves, such as Al Qaeda, ISIS. Uh, you know, Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and so on. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, that would take me half a page. So I need something, a phrase. Mm-hmm. And so, neo jihad means uh, it's not jihad, but it's almost like jihad. You know, it's one of those terms that academics like to use to uh, be a little bit more precise, Uh, but at the same time, you know, at the risk of, uh, 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 of confusing people. Right. But that's, you know, that's kind of an unfortunate aspect of academia, because in a sense, they talk to their own colleagues but also they talk to the general public. Mm -hmm. And uh, I call them global because most people, most terrorists, go after their own government and their own society. These guys are are an international group, so they go after the West. Mm -hmm. Even though they're not in the West, many of them, a lot of those groups emerged in the Middle East, but they go after what they call the far enemy. So Uh, The people who interest me are not really the people who go after their own government, but really go after the West or the global neo-jihad.
1: Excellent. I think that that's kind of a a trend in the book, is giving clarity and accuracy to these types of terms. You get into even looking at the the word terrorism itself and that type of thing that that we'll get to, and I think that that's that's an excellent aspect of the book. Um, Moving right along, uh, the first chapter in the book talks about it's labeled the actual threat. So it's giving a realistic view with numbers, numerical uh, backing and evidence to just how serious the global neo-jihadi threat to the West was emanating from organizations like Al-Qaeda or people claiming to act on their behalf in the post-9-11 decade. And can you tell us about the survey that you constructed to study this and and some of the findings?
0: Yes, I've been, uh, as I said, since 2001, I've been following this group very closely uh, and I've been following them uh, as they carry out operations in the West. Uh, There's been a lot of confusion about what is an operation because unlike Europe, in the United States we have a lot of sting operations and uh, a lot of the sting operation, the People who are arrested, the suspects, would never have carried out anything. But the government facilitated uh, their involvement uh, in terrorist operations. So you can't really call them. Uh, terrorist operation because absent the government, nothing would have happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're just people who are venting and then they are uh, basically set up by the government and arrested. And you're talking here about the vast majority of terrorist cases in the United States. Now, Europe does not do that. And the reason they don't do that is because they think that sting operations are really against Uh, the essence of a liberal democracy. You can't set up people uh, to do that. They used to do that in Europe in the 19th century and even up to World War II, but because of the police collaboration with the Gestapo during World War II, uh, a lot of those very aggressive uh, policing techniques were prohibited in Europe. Right. Uh, this is not the case here. The FBI, of course, have been has been doing this in the 1930s, and uh, very much uh, with a COINTELPRO program of the 1950s and 60s uh, against uh, any type of dissident, anti-Vietnam movement, uh, the civil rights movement, trying to set up even Martin Luther King, even. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but uh, with uh, the church committee hearing, they were prohibited from doing that. Uh, and they only then used sting operation against drug dealers in the 1980s. Uh, after 2001, of course, the rules changed completely with the Patriot Act, and they were able to carry out sting operations. And they basically became a political police in the very way that in Europe – the police was banned from those type of actions.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so you have to really understand what is a realistic threat? What, uh, what kind of threat are we facing absent of the government manufacturing uh, attacks? And, and so I basically listed about uh, 66 in the first 10 years uh, after nine eleven. And I have to wait a, a lag of several years because uh, the realistic information uh, about each of those attacks really come out at trial. And trials take, take place about two or three years or four years after the attack. So I basically had to stop uh, for 10 years. It's, it's, it's a nice way. Uh, to, to really see, you know, what was the essence of the attack. Was it, uh, would that have taken place or was it a sting operation or is it just material support because governments have a way of self-promoting and say, oh, we have, you know, uh, won a major victory against mm-hmm. terrorism, and this this is why I have the lab. Uh, but, I, I, you know, I've continued tabulating. And in the last five years, there is an increase in attacks mm-hmm. in the West, mostly not really so much in the United States, although we have an increase here, too. Uh, but uh, in Europe, especially in French speaking countries, because of uh, the history of France and uh, the history of colonialism in North Africa, And uh, with the independence of North African countries, a lot of uh, uh, North Africans have emigrated to France where they've been excluded, a little bit like African Americans are in this country. Mm -hmm. And and so they have a very different dynamic in France and Belgium, especially France, which accounts for the rise in the last uh, five years in France. But the, the the type of attacks that we see that we see are mostly loners, right. people who are disconnected uh, to a terrorist organization, uh, but still attack on behalf of the terrorist organization. To me, they're terrorists. But uh, uh, you know, there's a long discussion: what does it mean to be a terrorist? Mm-hmm. And I'll come to that a little bit later. So. Basically, what I found is that we had 66 attacks in the West, a region of 700 million people over a 10-year period, and that involves about 220 terrorists or politically violent people. So it comes out to an average of three terrorists per 100 million per year, hmm. which is really extremely small if you think about it. Yes. (laughs) It's amazingly small. More people die of lightning strike than a terrorist per year.
1: Mm -hmm. Wow. And it's when you put those statistics together. And and I remember reading quite a bit before 9-11 that there were those types of more outrageous statistics. But it's very interesting to put it in that context when it seems like the threat is everywhere, from politicians, the media, the types of things that you portray in the book, um, can you talk to the debate um, on whether Al Qaeda, perhaps as an organization, is then seen as, or is the data telling us that they're on the run or on the move? Um, and what what are the numbers telling us about that type of threat?
0: Well, uh, Al Qaeda, uh, the the threat from Al Qaeda basically peaked. Mm-hmm. In the second quarter of the decade after nine eleven so it peaked between uh, March of two thousand and four to September two thousand and six in that uh, uh, two two and a half year period, there were better organized attacks uh, against the West, mainly the five attacks uh, in uh, in Britain, what's called the Crevice Case, uh, which was a fertilizer bomb uh, attack uh, uh, that was uh, interrupted. Of course, the 7 7 bombing
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, in London, uh, the copycat 721. Uh, attempt, uh, to, to, to duplicate what happened two weeks before and what's called Operation Overt, which was a liquid bomb case, which is why you can't really take, uh, your soda or your water with you on an airplane anymore. Yeah. Uh, So those four attacks were really very concentrated and very serious, and that was the peak of al-Qaeda's ability to project to the West. After that, it decreased uh, uh, dramatically to the point where uh, since uh, the Zassi, the subway, uh, attempted attack in September 2009 here uh, in New York City, uh, you really don't have too many. What mm-hmm. you have is uh, a lot of loners who try to do things in the West on behalf of no longer Al Qaeda, but ISIS.
1: Right. And and you uh, you chose not to include uh, what you refer to as Daesh, which is perhaps more commonly known as ISIS, in your survey. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that as well?
0: Yes, basically, this came out of, um, uh, I guess, the, the civil war in, in Iraq, uh, where Shia tried to kill Sunni and vice versa, Sunni trying to kill, or killing Shia in the past, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, this was basically a, a local confessional uh, fight, and... Uh, uh, a lot of the Sunnis basically joined a uh, military organization to defend themselves against the Shia in 2013. And this became uh, what they call themselves the Islamic State mm-hmm. or uh, Daesh, the Islamic State in Shams or in the Levant and Iraq uh, – And and therefore, uh, the Arabic initial is Daesh, and most specialists call them Daesh instead of, you know, ISIS or ISIL or whatever, Mm -hmm. the Islamic State.
1: Okay. Interesting. And moving next to... um into the book to chapter two is talking about probability theory and counterterrorism. And I was wondering if you could explain um, how the probability theory relates to terrorism. So, how do we estimate the probability of someone carrying out a terrorist attack? And how is that useful? Um, and perhaps illuminating ways that uh, policies that are aimed at protecting the public uh, actually fail because of misunderstandings about terrorism and about the threat.
0: Yes, basically, you know, the uh, attempt to detect a person to, you know, that may carry out an attack is really an exercise in probability theory. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, it's what is the probability that this person will turn violent given this, this, and this? And and, and so they have to use Bayesian probability from Reverend Bayes, who in the late uh, uh, 18th century uh, uh, wrote his uh, little memoir about uh, how, how to go about and calculate the probability of those events. And it turns out that Nobody in the government knows anything about Bayesian theory <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh,
0: and nobody definitely uses Bayesian theory to try to say, what is the probability of this person who is on the Internet and makes very nasty comment? What's, a, what, what, what's the probability of that person turning violent? Uh, since the government does not do this type of Bayesian analysis, they, uh, they try to arrest everybody. You know, they try to set them up, and if the guy bites, uh, then they'll arrest him.
1: Right. Interesting. I think that an important aspect too that you bring up is, um, and that we're kind of moving into now, is that there's quite a difference between people who talk and people who act. Um, so,
0: also yes, saying that there, yeah, that there's a absolutely. fundamental
1: misunderstanding of the rad- of radicalization itself.
0: Well, radicalization, uh, I don't like to use a word because mm-hmm. it means two things, and people always confuse the two. Uh, one is uh, having extreme ideas, but then a lot of people have extreme ideas, but that doesn't mean they're going to be violent. In mm-hmm. fact, millions of people have extreme ideas, mm-hmm. but you know dozens carry out political violence. Uh, the second meaning is, of course uh the the uh, the use of political violence, and the two are not connected uh they 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 have some influence one over the other, but it's not very strong because as I said, millions uh have extreme ideas, but very few carry out political violence and so i'm trying to kind of tease out those two, and i'm interested really uh Uh, not so much in people having extreme ideas, but I'm very interested in people who carry out political violence.
1: Right. And one of the things that I I came across was you talk about uh, um, how does a lack of self-awareness of one's perspective on terrorists, so looking at the kind of the definition behind terrorist or terrorism and who views who as a terrorist, and how does that lead to the widespread misunderstanding of radicalization?
0: Uh, Yes, well, people, you know, to make sense of the world, self-categorize, I'm this in contrast to the other. Uh, And uh, once they categorize themselves in one or the other group, an in-group and an out-group, their worldview, everything that they see, interpret, uh, is seen through the prism of who they are. How they think of themselves, and so an, an inside of view of terrorists, and I'm interested in the inside of view of terrorists, in you know, order to understand them. When you ask them, "Why did you do this?" you know, at first they give you some nonsense about, uh, "Oh, it's Islam," and so on. And then said, Yeah, but there's 1.5 billion Muslims. How mm-hmm. come they're not all terrorists? Mm-hmm. And says, Oh, well, you know, then they blame uh, circumstances. It's the grievances, it's the you know, escalation of forces, it's seeing uh, Muslims being killed by various governments. And they felt that uh, enough was enough, and they wanted to be soldiers to protect their community, their imagined community. And this is really quite different, of course, uh, from uh, outsiders viewing terrorists to outsiders, you know, because it's so bizarre what they say. They think that there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. Either they are criminals, and it turns out very few of them uh, have been criminals, except for Uh, the current wave uh, in France, and there is a historical reason for that. Uh, The second is, uh, oh, well, the fanatics, you know, brainwashed by an ideology and they carry out those things because they're just robots uh, brainwashed. And, you know, when you talk to them, you realize they're not robots, they're not brainwashed. (laughs) They're real human beings. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, the problem. We tend to view... The odd group, really, in terms of stereotype, a unidimensional stereotype, and uh, they're all the same. There is no difference among them, and uh, they're basically cartoon characters that can, you know, act out uh, some very simple, uh, uh, <sighs> you know, uh, program in them. Mm-hmm. And you know, I found out that that's wrong. Unfortunately, most scholars. In the field of terrorism research, they uh, they tend to view terrorists as outsiders, so they really kind of, uh, you know, simplify them uh, to this uh, unique dimensional stereotype, mm-hmm. and uh, that that does not lead to, you know, understanding uh, either the terrorist or the threat. Right,
1: and in the fourth chapter. Um Aptly titled Milit- "Militants in Context" um, kind of puts them in context, like you're talking about. And can you tell us about the model that you propose to explain this turn to political violence that perhaps sheds um, more light on on the context that we're looking at?
0: Yes, so you know, by talking to them uh, and and uh, not just uh, Muslims, but looking at uh, terrorists throughout history, going back to the French Revolution, to the 19th century, they all seem to have the same kind of uh, uh, mechanism to turn to violence. Basically, they uh, start developing this social identity. There's something that activates a politicized social identity. There could be students in a cafeteria protesting against the quality of the food, but if the dean of the university calls the police who beats up the student, now uh, the food is not very important to them anymore. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that they were beaten by the police. They developed this activated uh, politicized social identity. Mm -hmm. And that basically divides them into us, you know, the people who are victimized by the police, and them, the police the society that, uh, so that supports the police, and so on. So you see this kind of uh, activation of a politicized social identity creates this uh, political protest community. It's, it's very much an imagined community uh, because they imagine themselves to be part of this group that's uh, being victimized by the police, uh, but that's not enough to turn to violence. That really creates this uh, political protest community where people may develop very uh, extreme ideas but they're still not violent. In order for them to right. be violent there needs to be three conditions. One is there is needs to be an escalation of the conflict including uh, a radicalization of the discourse. So people start using war metaphors uh, using just extreme example and of course what happened is that when you use those extreme concepts that very much constrained the various ways to look at the problem and to create solutions. Besides the escalation of conflict between Uh, This political protest community and the people they define themselves against uh, in contrast to you have to have a disillusionment with the legitimate grievance redress process, you know, say, well, we tried a lot of things, but nothing really works, you know, just talk, 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 nothing happens. But that's not even enough. What sparks the, the, the violence is usually uh, a sense of moral outrage uh, at an egregious outgroup aggression against uh, one's own community. And people say, you know, enough is enough. This aggression is often either the police brutality uh, that we see, that's very common, uh, the type of violent uh, Uh, attempt to uh, uh, repress peaceful demonstration and what happens is that at that point you have a few people within the larger political protest community who develop what I call a, a, a martial social identity. They start to think of themselves as soldiers defending their imagined community against the out-group. And a few of them then, because they're soldiers, and that's what soldiers do, become violent, first of all against the out-group, but with time the outgroup uh, boundaries expand to include all of society. And if uh, uh, that uh, group is not uh, repressed, if there is a large enough uh, contingent of them, you develop campaigns of political violence. Uh, and uh, now you really basically have the cult of the violence on both sides, both on the terrorist side, but also on the state side mm-hmm. and, and and you know unfortunately, there's many temptation to escalate violence, and very few to walk back
1: right and and what role does the internet play in facilitating uh what you refer to as imagined communities
0: well, of course, the internet uh, is uh of all the forms of communication that we've had through the history of communication, you know, before it was oral society, then written society and then it telephone, television, and so on. The internet facilitates this ability to feel part of this imagined community. Any kind of group that you chat with, either on uh You know, uh, websites or even especially social media, any Facebook page, uh, any people uh, uh, following others on Twitter can constitute an imagined community. Mm -hmm. So the internet very much facilitates this process, which is why you see far more of those learners right now uh, who act out uh will become violence on behalf of their imagined community
1: right and and can you discuss um, a little bit more about these loners and what some call perhaps lone wolves is maybe familiar to some of the listeners um and how they fit into your your conclusions?
0: Well, donors are physical donors, but they are part of this imagined community. You know, in the group that we are looking at right now, those global neo-jihadis, namely the followers of uh, Daesh or Al-Qaeda, they form as this imagined community that they themselves call the Ummah, which is a Muslim community. But they have a very... Uh, narrow view of this Muslim community, so they are physically loners but they 're very much part of this community with uh, which they communicate all the time, send Twitters, uh, communicate online, have you know comments on Facebook or on youtube uh, and, and so on so uh, yeah, law walls are really not law walls at all. They're very much part of this community, but they're physically loners.
1: Right. Right. And that makes sense. And can you um, elaborate on some confusion? You addressed this in the chapter around whether Daesh or, or ISIS uh, is growing or shrinking.
0: Yes. Yeah, so very much, uh, you know, a lot of the puzzles about Al-Qaeda or Daesh uh, can be resolved uh, with uh Uh, With this perspective, Uh, the formal organization themselves could be eradicated, could be completely destroyed by bombings and so on abroad. But the imagined community may grow. Mm. So if even if Daesh is destroyed or Al Qaeda is destroyed, you know, Al-Qaeda has not done much in the last uh, six, seven years. But still, uh, people who identify with Al-Qaeda uh, may grow, and some of them have grown or, or, uh, in the West. So there is no need of organization to control or orchestrate uh, those global neo-Jihadi attacks in the West. People carry them out uh, to defend the community abroad, but they feel very much at the point. Part of that. Uh, another aspect is, you know, right now in the West, the big uh, emphasis is countering violent extremism, mm-hmm. CVE, as people call it. Well, you know, what I describe uh, shows that CVE is completely pointless. Mm-hmm. Uh, news is interpreted through the ris- through the prism of one social identity. They reject outgroup propaganda. So basically what the government says, you know, the State Department can have a, a nice website, uh, but, you know, none of the people who are potentially violent ever access that. Group. Mm-hmm. It's, to, it's completely irrelevant. So mm-hmm. You can see that CVE, this notion of narrative and so on, uh, the outsider's imposition of a narrative mm-hmm. Uh, for an insider uh, just does not make sense. Mm-hmm. You know People listen to their own group and see the world from the perspective of their own group. Uh, the other aspect is bombing Daesh abroad may very well increase homegrown terrorists at home because the more they see their uh, people of the community being killed abroad by our own government. Uh, People at home who identify with them Say, my God, you know uh, uh, My own government Is killing my people I have to defend them I have to do something here
1: Mm
0: -hmm. I mean, some of them want to go abroad The vast majority want to go abroad And fight The West abroad uh, In that fight in Iraq And Syria, but a few decide To do something here And And you know, the, the the other important aspect, the military aspect, is that what we call counterinsurgency by foreign troops does not work. What you have is natives that self categorize against foreigners and uh, basically uh, make almost, I mean, you're they, going to have insurgencies against those foreigners. Those foreigners are going to be viewed as the enemy no matter what with time. And we see very much that's what happened in Afghanistan, that's what happened in Iraq, that's what's happening in Syria. Mm-hmm. You know, the U.S. is seen as the enemy. And it's very hard to impose, uh you know, something from abroad, unless you are willing to send 10 million people to occupy every valley uh, in the Middle East. Uh, uh, so, it, it, coinsurgency coin, as the military calls it, just does not work for foreign power. It can work, uh, uh, you know, for a domestic power, namely to fight an insurgency in your own country because then uh, the insurgents can identify with other people uh, in their country, but, but not by foreigners. So you can see that the model that I'm suggesting has a very, very significant implication in the fight uh, in, the, in the war on terror.
1: Yes, and, and to kind of go off that as well, um, looking at foreign fighters and this idea, um, of, of people going abroad to fight, um, how does your model kind of inform us about perhaps, um, the, uh, the threat that they pose or, or the perceived threat that they would pose? Um, are, are these people who, Perhaps uh, their want for violence is isolated into these countries that they're going to fight in, or or is it a a real concern of them coming back and importing that violence?
0: Well, uh, most of them go abroad to fight abroad, to defend, you know, the community abroad. When the war is over, many of them would probably come back and uh, they say, well, the war is over. You know, it's a little bit like when you demobilize your soldiers after a war is over. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those probably will not constitute a threat. And, you know, we've had many, many examples of this uh, uh, throughout history. There was the Lincoln Brigade, you know, people, communists, fellow sympathizers going to Spain. And, you know, th- there were tens of thousands uh, to fight against the Franco regime and also fascists, namely Nazis and uh, and Italian fascists. Uh, but when they came back, they, you know, they, there wasn't a single ca- attack at home. Even though they're communists and, you know, the United States were capitalists, I mean, most of those volunteers were French because, of course, it's uh, a neighbor of, of Spain. But you, you did not find any kind of violence afterwards. Now. Uh, you know, quite a few people who go to fight for ISIS become disillusioned and want to come home. And by criminalizing them, uh, you, you basically prevent them from reinsertion into society. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, those voices of disillusioned uh, fighters abroad are probably the single most important voices for potential young uh, people uh, in the West who identify with ISIS or Daesh uh, those voices they need to hear them to say look guys I, I know you imagine Daesh and you imagine uh, Al-Qaeda to be this virtuous organization but they're not and let mm-hmm. me tell you I was there and, and you know we, I have to tell kind of, you know uh diffuse this and those are probably the the, the strongest voice in the counter narrative because they come from within from an insider point of view not an outsider those are the people that young people would listen to mm-hmm. and by criminalizing them putting them in prison you basically eliminate that voice. You cannot have, you know, and indeed it's very hard to have a counter narrative propaganda. Uh, uh, when uh, you know your own action uh, seem to refute what you're saying mm-hmm. that this is a few, you know free country and so on, while you know you put people who you know wanted to 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 help out uh, you know were disillusioned and then came back and uh, uh, you know were put. Uh, were were criminalized and and and, uh, and imprisoned. That you know, this sense of moral outrage among uh, potential global neo jihadi is palpable. I mean, when I talk to them, they always refer to that. You know, that is so unfair. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to, you know, protect people who are being killed by barrel bombs. And you're talking about hundreds of thousands who are being uh, killed by the Assad regime and some of them by even our bombs. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it, it, they go there for almost humanitarian reason, not to become, you know, fanatics.
1: Mm-hmm. And,
0: and that's, that's why you really have to understand their motivation from the inside and not just from the outside. Because then you, what you're trying to, from the outside, you're really dealing with your own bias and not with reality.
1: Yes, and that's so important, I think, when we'll get to the next chapter talking about policy and approaches and that type of thing. One more question to follow up on what we were just talking about. Um, is there an, an Atlantic divide between the threats in Europe and those in the United States, and perhaps um, different contexts for uh, turns to political violence? Uh,
0: yes, especially in, uh, in France. Uh, and as you saw, France uh, has been... Uh, Uh, mostly victimized uh, by uh, those attacks uh, with the Bataclan, with uh, Charlie Hebdo, with, uh, you know, the truck uh, in Nice uh, Mm -hmm. on 14th of July uh, last year. Um, Actually, this year, not last year, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and, and that's really a result of the the history of uh, colonialism in France. Most of the people who carry out those attacks are French, the third-generation French. Uh, You know, they lived in uh, suburban ghettos uh, outside cities. They have no jobs. They're discriminated against. And so they identify, not with France, they identify with this imagined community of Muslims, namely uh, Daesh, and uh, they feel they're at war with the French government. And so it, it's really kind of a very different history than we have here in, in, in the United States, where most Muslims uh, 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 are not discriminated uh, against in the same way they are in France. And, and, and so you see, and the second aspect of Europe is that people can drive to the jihad. Mm-hmm. They, you know, uh, as we saw, a lot of people rent cars and take the cars across borders because they have open borders in Europe all the way to Turkey and then uh, uh, go across to Syria. Mm-hmm. So they can drive there. I mean, it's, it's, it's land, as opposed to Americans cannot. They have to take a plane. And so it's much easier to contain Uh, the threat uh, in the United States, either preventing people from going there or preventing people from coming back. This is not the case in Europe. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, when I read that in the book about just physically driving there, that's something you don't always keep at the top of your mind when you're looking at the news reports and that type of thing to put in context. So that jumped out at me as well. Um, Moving on to just... uh, concluding remarks that you make in the last chapter of the book. Uh, what are the potential approaches to uh, the escalating cycle of violence and retaliation to end the political violence in the West? What are some, uh, some approaches that you provide from, from your research?
0: Well, uh, there are two basically approach uh, approaches. Uh, one is prevention. So from the model I described to you, you prevent the politicization of private disputes, you know, don't scapegoat the uh, political protest community, you address the valid grievances. You can have to keep calm in the face of nonviolent challenge. You know, people who protest doesn't mean they're going to become violent. Mm-hmm. You often, you know, engage challengers in the political arena. And especially you need to have a disciplined, accountable police uh, and FBI. (laughs) I mean, people don't realize that the FBI is a police Mm -hmm. uh, in in the United States, a federal police as opposed to a state or local police. And you can't have any egregious state aggression against uh, this political protest community. But what happens once a violence breaks out? Then you have to have a a fair... uh, and uh just uh, repression against uh, uh, the, the actual people who are violent, not the ones who uh, the much larger communities potentially violent. So if you're facing a foreign threat, you have to contain it abroad and the fair repression of people at home, you can't conflate everything, you know uh, but if you bomb people abroad, i.e, uh, causing outrage from an insider's point of view, uh, you, you, you have to then anticipate that people at home will identify with the victims abroad and carry out attacks at home. So you, you have to be careful about what containment abroad is. But at home, uh, basically, uh, what you need is to break the cycle of violence through justice and fairness. You need to have a focused and proportional repression of lawbreakers. You have to isolate them and remove them from the larger political protest community. You have to have fair police conduct, no brutality, no stings operation. You have to try to bring them back to the fold. And by that, I mean... You know, people uh, are usually very punitive when they kind of think of, oh, look at that, the the person criticizes me. But Mm -hmm. in fact, what you need to to do is to stress the commonality that we have. Say, look, we're all Americans, and the essence of America is, you know, we don't have to agree with each other. But at least we can talk and we can uh, discuss our disagreement and try to see what we can do about it. You have to craft. A national social identity, mm-hmm. you know, making people outlaws prevent them from, uh, from, you know, you just throw them in prison. And of course, you can perpetuate this cycle of violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to uh, try perhaps to undermine the meaning of uh, the protest social identity. You know, kind of show that their leaders uh, really are in it for self-promotion, you know, Mm -hmm. of their own self over the group. And you have to resist gratuitous self-promotion by the government. You cannot have every time, you know, a young... uh, Muslim is arrested, would never have done anything, but was set up by the FBI. You can have this huge press conference saying we have just achieved a great victory under war on terror and all that kind of nonsense that, uh, you know, people believe. So basically what I'm arguing is just justice and fairness. And once uh, you, you know, have arrested them, You you have to return to this justice and fairness. You have to have an impartial and transparent procedural justice, meaning fair trials Mm -hmm. with reasonable punishment. Uh, You have to be very vigilant about biased prosecution and and even judges because, you know, judges and prosecutors are normal people. They often identify against a terrorist and they feel that they – protect society and instead of being judges or prosecuted they think they are avengers avenging you know what has been done to society each one of them thinks that they are avenging nine eleven, and you can see how this perpetuates the cycle of violence mm-hmm. and you cannot really kind of Uh, I mean, this terrorism enhancement in sentencing is, again, unfair and viewed as unfair by most of those young people. So, basically, what you need is to go back to justice and fairness. And all the measures I've described are really the essence of an ideal Western liberal democracy. So, being true to our values, it would eradicate the the problems at home. Mm
1: fascinating wonderful conclusions um well mark we've taken up a lot of your time but i just have one final question for you and that's uh, to give our listeners a bit of an insight into what you're working on now
0: uh, well i've uh, sent uh, two manuscripts uh one uh, of uh, which uh, is going to be published in two or three months it's called turning to political violence and it's basically a history of the emergence of uh of uh, what we call terrorism in the west from the French revolution uh through world war 1 uh and i stop at uh, uh first wall street bombings of 1920 that killed about 33 people uh and you know and in that story Uh, I have 34 campaigns of political violence, and none of them are Muslims. Muslims really came very late to terrorism. But uh, I'm I'm showing here that the same mechanism that I've just described uh, is true uh, for other forms of terrorism. And the next manuscript that I sent and is being right now reviewed for acceptance uh, is uh, Terror in London, describing in detail what happened in London during the peak of uh, al-Qaeda's prominence in the West, you know, the peak threat against the West, namely uh, the four uh, London attacks between 2004 and 2006. And I use... uh, Uh, trial transcripts uh, as my main source of, uh, uh, of data.
1: Excellent. Those sound like great projects, and we hope you'll come back and talk to us about them. And I want to thank you very much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you.